Hello. Four years later. Four years later. It's been a long time since I've had to say this, but I am Rob138. This is my buddy, Bob Stank. We are the Man Made Monster Cast. Welcome back, pal. Exhausted, but good to be here. <laughs> yeah, 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 I got that, man. I got that. Um, so today, uh, for the viewers on YouTube, you can see that uh, we're we're doing Candyman, the OG Candyman. Almost yeah. not the OG Candyman. Slight confusion. <laughs> <laughs> Up until the 13th hour, um, I had planned for OG Candyman uh, based on my partner here. Uh, he texted me and said, Candyman, period, Halloween, period. Something, was it something classic, he said? Yeah. Question mark. And I'm like, Candyman it is, because I've been wanting to rewatch it. I meant something a little different. In my head, it meant it, it worked. And apparently uh, there was a miscommunication. And I had uh, 30-some pages of facts that I was perusing through for the new one. And Rob's like, no, we're doing OG. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was a little more than that. We had a, a bit of a, a chat. And uh, I was like, oh, wait, you want to do the new one? I don't want to do the new one. I, I love the new one. Don't get me wrong. And I'm sure we'll reference it as we're, we're going through this. I got a few things on it. So, man, it's been it's weird. It's, I don't remember how to start this. Uh so I guess we'll just uh, we'll start with uh, the facts, man. What do you got for me? Theatrical release was October 16th, 1992, on a budget of approximately 6 mil, and it uh, looks like they grossed of uh, 25.7 mil. Not too bad, especially for back then. That wasn't the 16th, because when I pulled it up, it said it was the 18th. So I'm, I'm really? Yeah. We'll have to fact check that. I had the yeah. 16th. Either way, it's two days difference. I only asked because it was the 18th. That's the weekend of my birthday. That's fair. Uh, it was made by English filmmaker uh, Bernard Rose. Mm-hmm. And um, he got his start by actually working as a gopher on uh, The Muppet Show. Didn't know if he knew that. Yeah, I did so, not know that. It's kind of funny. A lot of good horror uh, and, you know, metal people got their start in some weird-ass shows. Well, Rob Zombie with Pee-wee's Playhouse. So. Exactly. So, speaking of the director, uh, in mm-hmm. my in my research, I... Uh, I had learned that apparently, and speaking of Rob Zombie as well, <laughs> apparently his wife was originally supposed to play the lead, and Virginia Madsen was supposed to play the Bernadette character. Yep, and um, so the the initial story of The Forbidden was set in London, which it was actually Bernard Rose's wife who found the story, loved the story, and went to her husband, and they both approached Clive Barker about turning it into a feature film. Uh, the film was initially, I guess, supposed to be in London, but then they decided it would be better to transpose it to Chicago for more modern, you know, uh, social, political, ethical uh, reasons. You know, they they had some ideas that they approached Clive. Clive was very on board. He actually really loved everything. Uh, his wife was actually supposed to play the character, and last minute, she got pregnant. Oh. Yep, Virginia Madsen was supposed to be Bernadette's character. Uh, which when they moved it to Chicago, they felt that they should create the Bernadette character as African-American to fit the, uh, to fit the film a little bit more. And Virginia Madsen moved into that role, but only because uh, Bernard Rose's wife asked her to, because they were actually friends. And she didn't want to step into the role because she didn't want to step on her toes, but she gave her the blessing and said, I only want you to play the character. And I thought that was kind of cool. See, you not to cut you off, but weirdly, I, mm-hmm. I also found some information. Uh, I don't, I don't know how true it is because I couldn't mm-hmm. verify it. But I don't know if you found anything in your uh, your uh, research that they were going to offer the part to Sandra Bullock as well. 
that's what actually I was getting ready to say was uh, if Helen didn't step into the role, Sandra Bullock was going to be the next option, which at that point, it was two years before Speed. So she was really a relative. Right, because she blew up with Speed. Exactly. So I thought that was really cool. And then if we're going to go into that, um, somebody else who was actually uh, up to play Candyman was actually Eddie Murphy. Yes. It's rumor. It's not confirmed, but they think that, or the rumor states that it's, Possibly because of his height and his payment requirements was why he didn't actually get. The I heard role. it was the. Uh, I heard it was the mm-hmm. pay. Gotcha. Well, and two, it makes sense because I mean Eddie Murphy's five nine versus Tony Todd's six five. So if they want a more imposing character, it, and I think they made the right choice. I love Eddie Murphy, but especially at the time, being that Tony Todd was more relatively unknown, I think it was. Well, there's choice. always something to be said when you have these, and, and not that this was going to become an iconic role. It became an iconic. But when oh, you right. have these, uh, I, I don't want to say no-name actors, but I, I don't mean that in an offensive way, but the, the actors that people aren't terribly familiar with that come into these roles and then they, they embody the part, it makes it feel more real. But getting back to the Eddie Murphy thing, I, there's a certain irony with that because, you know, obviously uh, there's, there's a lot of parallels here with Candyman and Dracula. Mm-hmm. And, and exactly. even so much as, you know, Tony Todd went so far as to say that he wanted to create his own Phantom of the Opera. So there's a, a lot yep. of gothic horror romance thing going on here. And oh, yeah. the irony of Eddie Murphy doing a vampire in Brooklyn is not lost on me. <laughs> After oh, all this, so. Actually, you know what? Yeah, I didn't even, didn't even think about that. And that is really funny. But um, it's, it's funny because I got a quote here from Bernard Rose uh, stating that uh, the idea was always that Candyman was a romantic figure. Romantic in the sort of Edgar Allan Poe sense, it's the romance of death. He's a ghost, and he's also the resurrection of something that is kind of unspoken and unspeakable in American history, which is slavery. As well, he's kind of come back, and he's haunting with a new version of racial segregation in Chicago. So this is still part of this quote, and I think there's something very seductive and sweet, very romantic about it, and that's what makes him interesting, the same way there is about Dracula. In the end, the boogeyman is someone you surrender to. You're not just afraid of. There's a certain kind of joy in his seduction, and Tony was always so romantic. Tony ties him in so elegantly and is such a gentleman. He is one. So that was always the intention of the director too. And the fact that he said, Tony played it exactly how he wanted. That's just, that goes without saying, I love Eddie Murphy, but I don't think he could have pulled that to that degree in such a serious I way. I mean, and Eddie Murphy has got some chops, dude. Yes, he does. Especially his later stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, my first experience with not going to go off a tangent here with Eddie Murphy, but my first experience with Eddie Murphy was raw. Um, as a okay. child, I saw that stand up. So, you know, that's that's where my folks were at. It explains a lot with you. <laughs> <laughs> it? But yeah, no, even when it, like, and you, you see this a lot with actors as they get into the mm-hmm. twilight of their careers, but let's call it what it is. Uh, they get towards the end of their careers and they start doing a, a, a lot more like out of their wheelhouse kind of things. I mean, Jim Carrey's done it. Oh, yeah. You know, where I they always call them art house films, but they, they do a lot more that, you know, requires, you know, which mm-hmm. other things that they haven't shown in their repertoire. They, they've been exactly. very typecast their careers because that's what, you know, their careers, that's where good, more power to them. That's where they made their money. But of um, course, anyways, I'm, I'm losing my point. Let's get back on track here. So here's a few things though. At the time, there were a lot of groundbreaking uh, special effects in this film. But one of the things that actually stood out to me was the opening title screen actually was the first film to use what they call a sky cam. And it was, it can shoot uh, up to a 500 millimeter lens with no vibration. And that's how they had such a smooth uh, shot across the highway going into Chicago. Yeah, that was, um, I actually had that down here too. That was mo- most often used with sports. 
with like football mm-hmm. and whatnot. And Candyman was the first motion picture that proved that you could use that with film and it could work. Really You'll cool. see as we, we start getting into talking about the movie um, that they definitely take advantage of it. They use it mm. a fucking lot. <laughs> like more, more than like I had originally noticed upon like my first viewing and all the other viewings that I've had of this movie. Because, you know, we watch right. movies differently when we're doing them for the podcast. Right. Um, we watch them a little more um, cynically, a little more ironically, because we you know, gotta, right. gotta entertain the people, Mark. You gotta entertain well, the people. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because like I had a discussion with Megan about this the other night. A lot of people were trying to recreate that sky cam, that shining shot, you know, mm-hmm. going up the mountain. It's so easy now because drones are so available. And, you know, they have 4K cameras with, set, with uh, stability options. And, you know, like we have, a, we use them at my work. I work for uh, Komatsu, a constru- uh, construction and mining company. And for our GPS systems and our machines, we freaking use drones with cameras on them so we can map things. Like, it's funny how available they are. So even if you look at, you know, uh, my and Kevin Kangas's films, Territory 1 and 2, there's a lot of drone shots in those films because it's just easy and it makes for higher production value. But back then, you needed a helicopter. You needed this big rig, this special stuff. So now what is common, and I, honestly, I feel overused, used to be just, oh, used to be like, wow, I can't believe they did this. Now it's just, eh part of the shooting well yeah it's like you mentioned that on our, our little chit chat that we posted was it last week which by the way you can find that on apple and stitcher and spotify and amazon now same as this we're official <laughs> we are official <laughs> <laughs> um but you mentioned that in that conversation about how you know when the shining uh did that overhead shot it was helicopters mm-hmm. now rk81 does it and it's just as simple as ordering a freaking drone on amazon and mm. Done, but getting back to Candyman, uh, you had mentioned how the, the film actually uh, tackles the the racial tensions in Chicago, mm-hmm. especially in the nineties, and I mean you could argue very prevalent today as well. Um, oh yeah, it's probably more prevalent. Today. Yeah. That that being said, with with respect to the Forbidden, that's that's one of the big changes. I mean, the Forbidden definitely tackles the societal structures in Liverpool. One of the things that I think made Candyman so special is the backstory of them. Granted, we don't know the character's name is Daniel Robitaille yet. That comes in the sequel. But the, the right. backstory of, you know, the Candyman himself, Tony Todd created that. Mm-hmm. That was all him with uh, when he was uh, rehearsing with Virginia Madsen. And I give him credit for that. Like, he really put his all into creating that character. He, I had a note somewhere. He actually gave him a different name. I can't seem to find it. I will try to find that, though. Well, we'll, we'll get into it. Let's... uh. Let's talk about the movie here, man. Um, so I'm just going to do like we used to, and it, it sucks because you can't see me. So so real quick, I, I, did, I found it. He actually named the character Granville T. Candyman. What was his name? Granville or Granville T. Candyman is what uh, he, Tony Todd initially named the character. when He, he gave the name. Candyman the last name of Candyman. Correct. <laughs> hmm. Okay. okay. Um, I... No offense to Tony Todd. He's an absolute sweetheart. We've met him numerous times. Oh, yeah. uh, absolute Huge sweetheart. Gentle giant. Um, glad they stuck with Daniel Robitaille from the sequel because not a fan of Granville T. Maybe it's Condiman or Condiman or Condiman. Like maybe there's like an inflection somewhere, you know, make it exotic. I don't know. I think you're anyway. just Charles. <laughs> Let's get into the movie. <laughs> so 
we open with an overhead shot of Chicago, the Chicago traffic, which again from the uh, the sky cam. Um, and my first thought, my first note here is Philip Glass fucking rules. Mm-hmm. Philip Glass fucking rules. And I think that's going to be a theme. I, I've got all these notes about, you know, as I was watching the movie, I think I typed that about 27 times. I'm glad you did because I actually, I, I kind of deleted most of my facts with him because I figured you were going to tackle it because I know you are a big score. Believe guy. it or not, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> but uh, okay, well then fine. We'll just say it. Apparently he was actually very disappointed with the film and he felt roped into something that he wasn't expecting. Oh, wow. But he's actually happy now, fast forward, you know, 20, 30 years because he's still getting paychecks. Well, yeah, so. it's, it's like, I would argue it's one of the most iconic scores in horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes, it is incredible. But wow, that that actually blows my mind. We transition <laughs> to some bees and this awesome narration from Tony Todd, where he ends with "What is blood for, if not for shedding?" Um, a ton of bees fly into the air in Chicago, and at this point, I kind of wonder to myself: Is there a bee pandemic that Chicago did not know about? Because that's a shitload of bees. <laughs> um, I hate to cut you off. Real quick, a note on that shot when the bees hit the camera. That was a mixture of visual and practical effects. They actually used the little bee vacuum that they were taking uh, all the bees off the actor safely with and reversing it and shooting the bees at the camera. And then they used practical or digital effects at the time to expand it and make it look like more bees. Oh, see, kids, this is why he's the effects guy. This is why I just watch the movie and write it down and have little quips. I'm the comedy guy. He's the smart one. Uh, so Candyman finishes his narration. We cut to a shot. Uh, when Helen played by the lovely Virginia Madsen, uh, she's smoking. Uh, she's being told a story about a babysitter and biker bad boy, Ted Raimi. Yes, <laughs> one of the cameos. Who would have thought that Ted freaking Raimi, of all people, would be playing like this badass, like biker, like hunk stud guy? Like, I'm sorry. No, I've seen Ted Raimi in too many things. I was just watching Man with the Screaming Brain the other night. Like, I can't see Ted Raimi as anything but a goofball. Now, yeah, even in person, if you've ever met him, he can be a dick in person, but even in person, he's... hmm? I said most of us can. Well, yeah, but uh, yeah, even in person, he tends to be very goofy, so it it was kind of funny. Yeah, it's one of his, uh, I don't want to call it early cameos, because, I mean, even then, he did a lot of stuff, but I, you know, I digress. So anyway, they're going to bone, but the babysitter tells him that uh, the story of the Candyman, as I guess it's some weird kind of foreplay, I'm not... (laughs) been sure it was a little odd but teach their own <laughs> ted raimi's like rubbing up and down this chick in the mirror and he says Candyman four times she tells him no one's ever gotten past four and then she tells him to go downstairs she says Candyman the fifth time lights turn out she gets murdered so this is where i start you know and we're right at the beginning of the movie i gotta question the rules here so i gotta ask can anyone say Candyman in the mirror so long as it's five times are those the rules it was always my understanding that the person that a person had to say it five times. Like, can right. me in a barbershop quartet stand in front of a mirror and do the say like sing Candyman in harmony one time, and it'll technically and he'll appear like it. Technically, it got said five times in a mirror, but it was by five different people. Let's just go with yes. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine <laughs> well, like that? That's a that's a musical horror comedy I'd want to watch. Like me in a barbershop quartet, just Candyman. Mm. Well, initially it was supposed to be 13 times. Could you imagine? Are you sitting me? No, apparently it was supposed to be 13 times and they moved it to five. God, I feel like this movie is long to begin with. Could you imagine if they all had to say it 13 times? <laughs> oh, 
anyway, a blood uh, a blood stain appears <laughs> in the ceiling, uh, and then apparently Ted Raimi goes crazy. That's the that's the end of the story there. So Helen heads to a different classroom where a classmate Bernadette is interviewing uh, what appears to be Freddie from Scooby Doo. Um, yeah. So what do we got for Bernadette, man? So uh, the actress was Cassie Lemons. And uh, she actually previously appeared in Vampire's Kiss, and she is uh, most, uh, best known for appearing alongside Jodie Foster in Science of the Lambs. Yes. Uh, but again, she was the second for the Bernadette character, as initially Virginia Madison was actually supposed to be Bernadette. Uh, she got out of acting and actually became a director and uh, became a pretty prolific director. And she also was a mentor for DaCosta, not on the, on the remake, but on a film before the remake. So there's a little bit of a connection between the original and the new one. Wow. I did not know that. I did not. Again, this is why he's the smart one and I'm the, the guy with the gags, you know? So we cut to an overhead shot, another beautiful overhead shot of the University uh, of Chicago, the pavilion, uh, with a voiceover about uh, urban legends from Helen's husband, Trevor. It ends with, you know, ain't no goddamn alligators in the sewers, yo. That's not how it's said, but that's how I wrote it because there's ain't no alligators in the sewer. The importance of this scene is we meet Stacy, who's kind of flirty with uh, Trevor. Helen picks up on this too. She says she couldn't even look her in the eye. Trevor makes light of it and then veers off on a why, and then they, I'm sorry, they veer off to why he's uh, doing an urban legends lecture since they're working on the same topic for the thesis. From there, Helen's listening to, her interview, to the interview and it explicitly states at this point, if you look in the mirror and say his name five times, he'll appear behind you. So did the babysitter say it four times before Ted Raimi came over and then said it the fifth time once he went downstairs? I got like, I have to know the actual rules to this. What happens if you speak in between? Does that break? The is there a pause rule? I don't understand the rules. <laughs> like the movie's just started. I think we're maybe twenty minutes in, if that. I, I'm, 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 I don't mean I'm not trying to shit on Candyman. I love it, but it's just one of those things that I never picked up on until this playthrough. And I'm like, huh, okay. So anyway, housekeeping comes in. Housekeeping. What? You need to flush your pillow. Ah, oh, nice family. Very good. Housekeeper comes in to clean the classroom and they uh, hear the interview that Helen is... Tommy the... Boy. It is Tommy Boy. Huh. No, we, need little, we need more level please. That would be family guy. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> how, let me get through this. Jesus, housekeeper comes in to clean the classroom and uh, they hear the interview tape that Helen's listened to and they tell her that the Candyman lives in Cabrini Green and that her friend knows all about it. Helen asks... Uh, she can talk to her friend, and the housekeeping lady obliges. Helen sets up a recorder. She's told about Ruth Eugene. She called the cops mm -hmm. after hearing banging and said someone was coming through her walls. No one believed her. She was apparently killed with a hunk. Quote, unquote, Candyman killed her. So here is something on that. Uh, the Ruthie Green character, that was the mm -hmm. name, right? So that was actually based on a real Chicago murder. Called, uh, the news article was called They Came Through the Bathroom Mirror and Cause of Death by journalist Steve Bogira. It was in 1987, a woman named Ruthie May McCoy lived in Chicago's Abbott Homes housing project, called 911 reporting a break-in. Because the call was misfiled as a disturbance with a neighbor, the police did not arrive until two more calls by the uh, other neighbors had been reported. McCoy was tragically killed in an, uh, by an intruder who entered through the bathroom through an opening behind the medicine cabinet, just like in the film. So that actually was a real thing. Those projects were built where the apartments were connected. Yeah. 
So I thought that was really interesting. And they kept the name Ruthie as an homage slash to keep it kind of based in reality. Right. And I think they, uh, I think they tore down Cabrini Green in the same 1999. It was, uh, I got that one too. It was torn down. The high rises were uh, controversially and famously demolished in 2011. Now a target stands in its place. Uh, but the Cabrini Road houses, which are featured in the DaCosta sequel, are still still remain. So that is all still there. But the actual projects were torn down. Um, yeah, that's what I got. <laughs> so a target is there now? Yeah, they built a target over what used to be Cabrini Green. I'm surprised it's not a Walmart. Consumerism at its finest, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. So we cut to a news uh, newspaper clippings projector montage. And it's funny because... Because everything's gone digital media, we're like we don't get these anymore in movies, and I just I kind of miss them because they're they're just always a really great visual. Mm. It's one of those things where like you, I saw it when I was watching the, the film yesterday, and I was like, oh, newspapers, man, nobody does print really anymore. They still come to my house every week. Well, <laughs> uh, Helen takes the clippings to Bernadette, who thinks this is sick because it's reality and not urban legend. Helen shows her two different clippings showing that it's not Cabrini Green in the photo. It's uh, actually her building and states that her apartment was built as a housing project. She proceeds to take her medicine cabinet and mirror off the wall in the bathroom and shows that there's no wall between the apartments. You can just pop the medicine cabinet out and get through to the next apartment. I feel like this is Death Star levels of sh- like shitty design flaws. But it was real, so yeah, I know yes. that's that's like awful. <laughs> I didn't know it was real until you just told me. So yeah. uh, they put the mirror back in and do the whole Candyman stick since they don't believe in it. So here's the thing: only Helen says it five times. Yeah. Bernadette says it four times, but since they were together, they said it a total of nine times. Should they both be killed? What are the rules? Does he only kill one for every five times it's said, or does he kill everybody who's in the mirror if it's said at minimum five times? Maybe he kills her four fifths of the time. Well, I mean, Bad joke, I'm sorry. It's, there's. I, I think I get to it later in my little uh, thing here. When uh, spoilers, um, he does eventually kill Bernadette. Did she say it in the mirror one more time between now and then for that to happen? And was it four fifths uh, part of the movie? That far into the movie, it may have been. It's <laughs> it's meta. <laughs> We're bringing it back. Yeah, I haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Helen's in bed. Cue Trevor in a jump scare. He's drunk, and Helen looks worried. And that's that's well, that's that scene. We go to another overhead shot. Uh, there's a lot of these in here. This is where I start notating that. Um, Helen and Bernadette dressed like cops, <laughs> straight up do <laughs> go to mm-hmm. Green Green. Bernadette is basically like, "What the fuck is wrong with you? This is gang territory." They argue about whether they should go, and they decide to because Trevor and Archie. This I. I thought she said Archie. I didn't catch it. Uh, would chicken out. Um, but we, if she did say Archie, we're never introduced to Archie. Mm. Unless the Purcell character is meant to be Archie. I don't know. So then we get another overhead shot. They're really making use of the sky cam because I imagine it was pretty expensive. Oh, sure. There are some dudes watching them get out of the car, question them. They tell them they can't come in uh, to the building. They ask if they're police. They follow, follow them. They yell up to the stairs. 5 are coming up. Helen reassures Bernadette that it's okay because they think they're cops. So got a little thing on that one was a lot of the extras in that scene were actual residents and gang members from the Chicago and Cabrini Green area. They actually had to pay rival gangs not to have like turf battles while they were 
were uh, filming. And they one of the ways that they could actually use Cabrini was by allowing them to be in the film. So that was kind of cool. Uh, when they were scouting the area, uh, plainclothes police officers actually escorted Tony Todd and Virginia Madison through the Cabrini Green project so they could get familiar yeah, with it. I remember reading that uh, they had to have police on staff for when they were filming mm-hmm. as well. That too. And apparently, um, so I got two different stories with it, but apparently a stray bullet uh, either hit one of the production vans or a generator at one point. Jesus. I mean, yeah, but Chicago, that, brother. Mm-hmm. I mean, look where we live. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> I, I think you know, I got a buddy in Chicago, uh, my boy Buko, CM Dub, what's up? We we always have a, kind of have a contest and we go back and forth every year about who's going to hire murder rate, like who's in the lead, Chicago or Baltimore. I think we won last year. Uh, I don't know if you call that winning, but we win almost every year because uh, I always stay up on the uh, on that on the um, the crime murder the rate line. in our town, Mur- <laughs> murder rate and crime. And uh, Baltimore usually sits anywhere between third and fifth in the nation. Um, believe it or not, a lot of times higher than Detroit, um, higher than New York City, uh, St. Louis, Missouri is almost always number one, which is just the oddest third thing. Or fifth, we got to pump those numbers, brother. Actually, that's I'm good. Time. Yeah, that's not. I don't condone murder. And so we get our first shot on the sweets to the sweet graffiti on the wall. And this mm-hmm. graffiti is prevalent in the stories. Um, going mm-hmm. back to the Forbidden, where Helen's character is actually studying graffiti. I think they tried to do that a bit with this, to where she takes a lot of the photos of the graffiti of Cabrini Green and whatnot, even though she, they're technically working on a thesis about urban legends. So I, I really appreciated that that's one of the things that translated from the Clive Barker short story over mm-hmm. to uh, the actual motion picture. Maybe not directly, but still, it, the flavor of it is there. So also, uh, Sweets to the Sweets and his state, his uh, Growing the Gullet are both Shakespearean references. Really? Growing the Gullet was a play on From Knave to the Chaps from Macbeth. And um, I had what Sweets to the Sweets was, but it, I, I can't find that right now. But yeah, they were both actually references to Shakespeare. Well, that, uh, that actually does not surprise me. Um, and I'm sure, you know, let's just say this here, we're going to probably most definitely do an episode on Clive Barker one day. Oh, yeah. The guy's awesome. So, um, so Helen's taking pictures of the graffiti. Uh, we get a jump scare where a door opens and big-ass dog starts barking at him. They make it to Ruthie Jean's abandoned apartment. Helen says the layout's identical to hers. So she goes to the bathroom, check the mirror, medicine cabinet thing. Uh, Bernadette doesn't really want to be there at this point. They find a hole where the killer crawled through. Helen takes some pictures and crawls through herself. Helen's taking pictures of the derelict apartment. I, I got to wonder at this point what this actually does for their thesis. Just taking pictures of this murders like crime scene. Um, so Helen crawls through another hole in a wall, which turns out to be an agape mouth of some graffiti that's supposed to be the Candyman. Uh, there's a pile of candy with razor blades in them that Helen finds. And then we get a jump scare of Helen popping her head through the window. Uh, Helen ran out of film, LOL, <laughs> and she wants to go back. Uh, Bernadette says no. Um, so I, I don't know if I just missed it or I've just missed it every time I've watched this movie. What is the significance of the candy with the razor blades in it when it comes to the lore of the candy bed? I didn't find anything on it. I just assumed it was more visual. And the fact that uh, a lot of the candy, like, because so here's a little thing was that Clive Barker actually got confronted by a number of academics who accused him of taking advantage of using African-American urban legends. When in fact, 
he created the story of the Candyman. Well, the Candyman in the London version. However, the urban legend holds and hits so well that a lot of people for the longest time thought it was a real urban legend. So a lot of the times, like if I've ever heard of like the Candyman or any type of things like that, it always goes back to the Halloween thing of razor blades and candy bars and things like that. And I just wonder if it was kind of a play on that. This is just me assuming. I couldn't, like I said, find anything on it specifically. Well, I know that. So there was a there was a real life Candyman. There was a, there was actually Correct. a real life. Uh, I don't know if he actually counts as a serial killer, um, but a real life pedophile and killer whose yep. family owned like a candy factory or something of the sorts. Um, now this movie has nothing to do with that, but that's the only link that I could think to connect. But I also want to point mm-hmm. out that you know Candyman twenty twenty one actually did more to explain the candy and the razor blades than exactly. any of the three prior Candyman movies did. I really love that uh, 2021 expanded on that. So, Anne-Marie is the chick who had the giant dog. So she's back out with a huge-ass dog, and she questions why they're there. Uh, They want to talk to her, but she has to tend to her baby. They follow her, and Helen reassures her that she doesn't want to cause a problem. Anne-Marie wants to know what they're studying, studying that they're bad, that they steal, that they gangbang, that they're all on drugs. She says they're not all like the assholes downstairs, and she just wants to raise her son, Anthony. Emory says she didn't mean to be rude, but typically the white people who come around Cabrini Green aren't the handshaking type. She asks if they want to know about Ruthie Jean. Emory said she's heard ever, that she heard everything through the walls, and even she called 911, but no one came. She says she's scared that they'll never catch him. Catch who? Catch the candy. So let me cut to Parcel. Purcell, I'm sorry, Purcell, who I don't know if Purcell's Archie or not. But Purcell, he wants to review the data that Helen and Bernadette have, but Helen declines. Purcell takes a cheap shot, and basically Helen shits all over him. Bernadette mentions Cabrini Green, and Purcell says he wrote a story about uh, Cabrini Green and the Candyman 10 years ago, and uh, laughs at Helen when she says she doesn't know the story. Oh, yeah, so that is Archie, by the way. I do have a note on that. He is Archie? Yeah, so uh, Bernard Rose is actually Archie. That is him in that scene. He plays the university researcher. There you go. Something, something clicked when you started talking about that scene, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. All the information I tried to pull up just had him credited as Purcell with no first name, so I'm like, because Archie. Yeah, yep, so that's Archie, and he's the really stuck-up university teacher. That's your two major cameos in the film, Ted Raimi nice. and him. So Purcell gives us the exposition as to Candyman's origins, how he became the portrait painter. Candyman was hired to paint the portrait of a rich man's daughter, a rich white man's daughter, that's important. They fell in love. She became pregnant. He tells her that Candyman was uh, chasing Cabrini Green because her father, you know, found out and hired basically a lynch mob. They sawed off his hand, smeared him with honey, and let bees sting him to death before they burned him alive and scattered his ashes all over Cabrini Green. And again, this is all Tony Todd. Right. This whole story is Tony Todd, and I think it's awesome because that is a great origin story. Very tragic, very brutal. It gives a lot of uh, reasoning for the character to do what he does. Yeah, it's it's incredibly tragic, and I think the best mm-hmm. the best heroes and villains in in cinema and in literature are the the tragic hero, the tragic villain, and the story itself because it hits on like a real level adds a certain mm-hmm. gravitas to where you know do you root for Candyman? Do you and I, I think again twenty twenty one played to that. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I cannot. I know you wanted to do twenty twenty one. I adored, I absolutely adored 20, the Candyman 2021 movie. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I love that it played 
to the strengths that the original set up mm-hmm. and even filled in some gaps there. But, you know, we will talk about 2021, I'm sure, in a different episode. Yes, yes, I definitely want to cover it eventually just because I wanted to see it in theaters with everything going on in the world the way it was. We just, and us having the three kids, it just wasn't possible. And I kept hearing reviews from friends that I respect, friends that I just look at and go, yeah, you're an idiot. And it was very wide spectrum. You were either had, you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. And the people that told me I was going to hate it, the reasonings they gave, I'm just looking at like, I thought I knew you. Like, right. You know, reading, reading to that, what you will. Uh, it's like, you're really that closed-minded. I'm really wanting to see this movie now. And honestly, I stayed, my wife and I put it on one night. It came, we bought it the day it came out and I was blown away. Like, is it a perfect movie? No, there really aren't many, if any at all. But it was just one of those things where I was just watching it and going, holy shit, this is, this is the kind of sequel 20, 30 years later that you hope to see right. versus, you know, a dumb and dumber two and things like that, which I, I thought was hilarious, but, you lost the magic of the original film. This did not. And I think that's what, what really set me off with the new film. Yeah, I, I would argue it added to mm-hmm. mastery and the magic of the original. Um, so we cut back to Helen in her apartment. She meets, uh, I'm sorry, Helen in the apartment, uh, Ruth, uh, Anne-Marie's apartment. Uh, she meets this little kid named Jake. He says Anne-Marie isn't there when Helen knocks. Uh, another huge dog jump scare because we haven't had enough of those already. Helen asks Jake about Ruthie. And Jake says he doesn't know anything. I mean, this is street code, man. I grew up in Baltimore, like in the city, in the shitty parts. This is street code. like. And, you know, Helen, entitled college, you know, kid coming in here, doesn't know shit about anything. So Helen tries to tell him it's okay because she's not a cop. That doesn't make it okay. Snitches get stitches. We all know that. Mm -hmm. So he says Candyman will get him uh, if he talks and she's crazy for being there. She tells him that she's not scared, that Jake doesn't have to say anything. He can just show her where Candyman is unless he's scared. And I have here, this is some manipulative bullshit. This chick is in the ghetto, disrupting everyone's shit for her thesis. She's got no respect for the street code of conduct and thinks she can just come in and put all these people at risk. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's entitlement 101. Well, and she gets hers. We'll get so. there. <laughs> I, that's what I'm saying. But, you know, it, she gets hers. And it's kind of tit for tat at that point. Yeah. Anyway, Jake takes her to the public restrooms where they pass a big bonfire being built for the quote-unquote party. Uh, Jake says a boy got killed in the bathroom. His mom was in the store across the street. He needed to use the bathroom. The mom heard him screaming. He said a big tough guy went in and came out with white hair and says basically the, the kid got castrated. And he says, can't fix that, better off dead. Yep. So speaking of Helen and getting hers, this is exactly... <laughs> word for word what I wrote here. Helen's dumbass goes into the bathrooms for reasons. Note, sweets the sweet looks like it's written in shit on the walls here. She's gagging. She's choking. She opens the stalls. There's an arrow pointing down to a toilet, which is full of bees. Mm-hmm. Outside, the quote-unquote candy man approaches Jake and then goes into the bathroom. And we get the infamous, we hear you're looking, looking for, for the candy, candy man, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> cool thing about the bees in the toilet again one of the things they wanted to do was make sure that these bees weren't injured on set mm-hmm. so they actually put a queen bee in the bottom of the toilet so the pheromones would come up and that's what kept the bees down into the toilet but to keep the bees from around the area of the toilet seat of getting potentially crushed and whatnot they used actually used vaseline 
so they couldn't climb up, which is what helped keep them in because all these bees were only 20, 12 hour old, um, basically babies because they were safer to deal with because there was less chance of right. getting stung. Yeah, so they were bred specifically for the. It's film. funny the the bee wrangler is actually the person responsible for murdering Macaulay Culkin and my girl. <laughs> Same bee wrangler. So, anyways, we hear you're looking for the candy man, bitch. <laughs> Alan tries to talk her way through this, and that shit just does not work. Uh, this is what happens when you go fucking around with shit that you shouldn't fuck with. Period. She gets a little beat down. Yeah. So we cut to the lineup scene. And I just need to say that this scene has been one of the most inadvertently funny things to me for a long, long time. I don't know how this whole thing started, but the we hear you you're looking for the Candyman bitch thing became a gag between me and our old buddy JR. And then it yep. spread to you. And then it spread yeah. to like Matt and, and everybody. And I think it's just how the lines were delivered and the fact that we were total idiots then because we were like in our early 20s. Um, I, like, I vividly recall at band practices when, when because uh, me and JR, you know, used to be in a band together. I, if I was looking for something to hear or he was looking for, for something, and somebody would say, What are you looking for? And what it was with y'all, we hear you're looking for the candy man, bitch. Yep. <laughs> so, anyway, Helen ID is the guy. Uh, she has a huge shiner as a receipt for, you know, don't go snooping around. Not that I think that anybody should ever hit a woman. Let me just clarify that shit right now. But you also shouldn't fuck with shit that you shouldn't fuck with. No. And that was more than the shiner, dude. I don't know how she healed so fast, considering it looked like she had a golf ball in the yeah, side of her eye. Yeah, I'll, I'll mention that briefly. <laughs> <laughs> the detective says that all of Cabrini Green is locked down and uh, and says that the quote-unquote candy man ran the overlords and he killed Ruthie and the kid. They said they could never get him before because they didn't have anybody to testify. Helen asked about Jake. She goes to talk to him. Uh, Jake gives her a bunch of shit for being a liar, which, you know, justifiably. And uh, mm -hmm. turning her back on their secret, he says Candyman will get him. Helen tries to tell him Candyman isn't real. So we cut to Trevor getting home. Helen's greeting him. And I guess this is a time jump because Helen is healed up rather nicely. Um, so Trevor's acting strangely in this scene. We get another overhead shot. Bernadette meets Helen. Helen laments that it's ridiculous that the two, the two people get brutally murdered at Cabrini and nothing happens, but a white woman gets attacked and the whole place gets locked down. Unfortunately, um, this, is, this is a commentary on society and, and today. It's unfortunate. And I agree 100% that that is terrible. Bernadette saved the pictures, says there's interest in their thesis uh, since she made the local section of the newspaper. Again, newspapers, we have print. Helen thinks they'll be published. Now we get the real Candyman. Which is funny because he actually is not seen for 44 minutes into the film. Let me rephrase that. He is seen eventually 44 minutes into the film. Yes. And then a, a little thing that I had uh, read, uh, one of the big themes there was that it wasn't the cops stated they knew who the Candyman was, and it wasn't until Virginia Madsen's character, a white woman, actually gets attacked that they are willing to take action. Yeah, that's what I just mentioned. Okay, well, that I apologize. My daughter was up here. I, no, I, I, that's uh, fine. That's fine. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, we we can discuss that. It's, that's horrifying because you know yeah. that was the case then, and one can argue that is the fucking case today. Yeah, that's sickening and. And it, that was the thing that I really liked about this film was they, they didn't shove it in your face, but they did it in a way that makes you go, hmm, you think, and you go, holy shit. You know, it makes you feel. And I think that's the thing that made Candyman, especially at the time, stand out with a lot of quote-unquote slasher films was how intelligent it was. 
you know, a lot of slashers at that point were just, just that, you know, comedic driven, you know, gore fests where this really, really tackled a lot of stuff. And, and if you don't walk away from this film feeling something, then you have no soul. No, there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here before we move on. Um, mm-hmm. I would, uh, I would argue, and I, cause I've never ever considered Candyman a slasher movie. I've never, I, I feel it's more of a supernatural, almost gothic romance in the vein of Dracula, like we mentioned no. earlier. Definitely is, but it almost always falls in the slasher category. Right. B- because of the times, you know, in the exactly. 90s, everything was, in the late 80s, everything was freaking slasher. Mm-hmm. But I want to get back to, you, you had an earlier comment about 2021 Candyman. And mm-hmm. you had people running the spectrum of what they thought of it and the idea, mm-hmm. the thought of, well, I thought I knew you. I, I can relate to that a bit. Um, and it's not lost on me, you know, because you and I talked mm-hmm. briefly about this before we started the podcast. It's not lost on me that we're just we're two white dudes sitting here talking about this. It's not right. lost on me at all. Um, that being said, there's a difference between uh, getting to your point about, you know, having a messenger. There's a difference between there are some films out there that pander for, for a certain subject matter so they can get that hashtag. And there's intelligent movies like this in like 2021 that actually have a legitimate message to send and have solid ground to stand on. I just wanted to point that out because I feel like a lot of that gets lost in translation, especially when people aren't open to opinions that aren't the ones they hold already. Right. They aren't open to learning. I think that's a, you know, I'm here on a (laughs) grandstanding here and just, you know, whatever. But I think that's important to, to acknowledge that, you know, there is a message in this movie. There, it's very prevalent in today's society, if mm-hmm. not more so. Right. And even um, even the uh, director, Rose, stated that the movie, he wanted it to be very racially motivated, but he also wanted it to be poverty motivated. He wanted it to hit multiple spectrums, right. you know, and I, I, he, he did just that. You know, you had this uh, uh, English director doing an American film and did it so well. Well, with that said, now the real Candyman appears. Uh, we get a set of feet, and uh, I, I would say of the three movies that this is my favorite Candyman attire, by the way, with the checkered pants. Uh, right. So we see that in the feet. We see the long coat with uh, the brown frills on it. And also, getting back really quick, um, getting back to more film-related, two things. One, if you ever notice, you never hear Candyman's feet. You, ne- you never hear his footsteps. Hence, going to his mental state of Virginia Madsen, as well as, you know, his spiritual ghost, as- you know, aesthetic aspect. Two, the director did not like female characters screaming in the film. So instead of having Virginia Madsen scream or freak out when she saw him, he actually uh, brought in a hypnotist and hypnotized Virginia Madsen and would have keywords that would put her in a trance state, which is how they got her to have such a natural reaction whenever Candyman was yeah, around. that's a... Uh... That's kind of scary to me. Could you imagine being on a film to where, okay, well, mm-hmm. so here's the thing. Uh, Tony, you're going to have to have a mouthful of bees. Uh, Virginia, you're going to have to let us hypnotize you. So we're all good here, right? Right. <laughs> like, how do you talk people into that? Other well, than Tony Todd got paid like a grand for every bee sting. So. Yeah, and it was 23 bee stings uh, in yeah. the first film. That's a nice so bonus. That was... You had to get stung 23 times. So anyway, he's walking towards Helen. We have Tony Todd's... Uh, voiceover calling her name and it is just so unsettling so eerie mm-hmm. but also kind of romantic at the same time right. uh, she sees him at the end of the other end of the garage 
he says he came for her. We got a flash of the graffiti that she was taking pictures of, and she stumbles. She asks if she knows him. He tells her no, but she's doubted him, and he tells her that there's no need to leave yet. He says he was obliged to come since she didn't believe the stories, and this is the first time we hear the infamous Be My Victim. Be My Victim actually comes from the short story as well. That wasn't just for the film. This, I have not read it. I, I I have the books of blood. I, I have tons of books that I just buy and don't read. But but yes, it was in uh in the short story. Uh, Candyman, awesome uh, monologue here. He says he's the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. And without these things, he's nothing. So now he must shed innocent blood. Come with me. Then we cut to Helen covered in blood in Anne Marie's bathroom. We don't know it's Anne Marie's bathroom yet. But she's on the floor in a bathroom. She opens the door. There's the severed head of the dog. Uh, she can hear Anne Marie screaming. She picks up the cleaver, why I don't know, and finds her screaming over her baby's crib. The crib is covered in blood and empty. The two get into a fight. Anne Marie wants to know where her baby is. Helen winds up cleaving her on the arm. The police arrive while Helen is on top of her uh, with a cleaver raised. Um, I just want to point out there's there's some parallels here uh, mm-hmm. between this and the 2021 film. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of it has to do with the time periods in which they they take place and the message that it's sending especially with respect to the, the political climates. But I thought it was, especially with the scene in particular, that it was interesting that while they don't open fire on Helen, who is brandishing a weapon above right. Anne-Marie, and spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen either one of these movies, I guess, um, when the police bust in on Brianna holding Anthony, who's injured and probably bleeding out the 2021 movie, they open fire on him immediately. Yep. So um, I think that was done um, purposefully. In the the um, the twenty twenty one version, I think it's very intelligent. Right, real quick, um, there were two things that bullet points I wanted to say, but sure. kind of just kept rolling. So uh, you made the comment where he states on the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom, without these things, I am nothing. Mm-hmm. Was actually a play on the original lines from the short story, which was, "I am a rumor; it's a blessed condition. Believe me, to live in people's dreams, to be whispered on street corners, but not have." He to actually be. says almost an exact line later in the movie as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, also there's a point when that going back to the uh, bathroom scene, when she's talking to the boy about Candyman not being real uh, and she compares him to the likes of Dracula and Frankenstein. There was a point to that is that Dracula and Frankenstein are both based on l- loosely based on real life accounts of Vlad Tepes. And uh, they're made up stories that have kernels of historical truth, which hence Candyman is a fictional story, but has historical prevalence to the Cabrini Green area. I thought that was another thing. Like the little things in this movie that are just so smart, you know, you just hear Hearst telling a little boy, trying to comfort him, make him feel better. But there was actual re- meaning behind that line. Right. That's, you know, another thing that is just so intelligent about stories like this is it makes her great storytelling when it could literally happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, you can't become a, a floating hook hand ghost that we're aware of at you least. Can't. So that we're aware of. <laughs> oh, okay. But all the things that got him to that point mm. can and have happened. Oh, so, yeah. Um, getting back to the, the, the film, we, we cut to a distraught Helen. Um, she's covered in blood. She's being strip searched by a female op- officer. Um, I'm not sure why. I don't know if I just missed that, but she's being strip searched. Uh, Helen wants to shower and she wants to talk to uh, Detective Valente, who's played by Gilbert Lewis, and he was in Cheers. That's important because he is not the only Cheers alumni in this movie. So I got two things on that uh, strip scene. One is personal and one is uh, an actual factoid. So when Helen's stripping in front of the policewoman, Virginia Mattis 
Virginia Madsen suggested her uh, lifelong best friend, Rusty Swimmer, as the parts that she felt more comfortable stripping in front of another person that she knew. And two, that's also a uh, famous line from our old Monster Mania days when you used to tell Megan to. Oh, we're not going there. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, we're not going there, pal. Uh, <laughs> that is where we okay so uh no i'm not even gonna tell that story that one stays in the uh that one stays in the box for later we're not going there <laughs> um everybody's gonna think it's weird now i don't care so that's fine <laughs> um so eventually she does talk to detective valento and uh she's told she's under arrest and she's running rights valento's really pissed here and asks if she wants her lawyer she asks her phone call. She calls Trevor. Who doesn't answer? It's 3 a.m. He's probably banging Stacy somewhere. Helen is in her cell. She's staring at the toilet, which is, if I ever go to prison, I'm not going to just stare at the toilet. I feel like that's weird and really unsanitary, or any toilet for that matter. Uh, <laughs> she gets flashes of the graffiti and uh, baby Anthony, Candyman, and Anne Marie. Trevor finally shows up and he bails her out. The front of the police station is, you know, full of reporters and whatnot. And she's walked to the car, the typical, you know, OJ trial kind of, you know, media bullshit. Um, back in her apartment, the attorney says that they haven't charged her because they think they'll find a body, which means they're going for murder one. Helen says she doesn't know what happened. She just woke up covered in blood, uh, cut to the bathtub. Trevor asks if he can get her anything, kisses to her. Uh, he says that he has to go to the campus slash probably fuck Stacy, <laughs> but doesn't want to leave her alone. Helen asks where he was last night. He lies and says he was there asleep and then he leaves. Helen goes to the kitchen for a drink and a smoke, which, you know, great times, minus a smoking thing. Um, she loads the film from her photos onto her projector and she goes to them. Also, things that we don't do anymore. She would have never run out of film today because she'd had an iphone unless she got the cheap one then she just ran out of space on the uh on the well, that's why you get the cloud bro <laughs> so um she stops on the Candyman graffiti face photo and again on her taking a selfie into the mirror uh that is still a thing today <laughs> oh very much so clean your mirrors for the selfies <laughs> right <laughs> she notices a silhouette up <laughs> behind her she puts it into focus and it's the candy from there she goes to the bathroom for something uh, and looks around. We get a cool jump scare here uh, with Candyman's hooked arm coming through the mirror here. And I'm going to take this one if you don't mind. Something very cool about this is Virginia Madsen did not know that this was coming. So her reaction to Candyman's arm coming through is a legit reaction. They did not tell her that this was happening in the scene. I actually didn't have that one, but I do have something on the hook oh. hand though. So the uh, they, they actually commissioned the hook to be made by a local blacksmith who was more than happy to oblige and make the money until he found out that the film was actually being uh, produced by Clive Barker. And the story was based on Clive Barker, which in turn, he was familiar with the Hellraiser films and as a devout Christian refused to make the hook. Oh. Well, fuck it and paint him. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So she runs in the hallway. She sees Candyman at the end of the hall. She says, be my victim. She runs back to her apartment. He's there as well. He tells her he has baby Anthony and he wants to take her to where she will, uh, where he will die in her place. Uh, tells her that her disbelief destroyed the faith in his congregation and now he must kill her. Um, which I'm starting to wonder if the writers of Freddy versus Jason watched this movie to figure out what Freddy's character was. Probably. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels um, there. Really enjoy the line, come with me and be immortal. The only way it could be cooler is if right after he says that, Queen kicks in with the Highlander theme. Right. 
But to go back before we before we hurt our horror cred, um, the whole Freddy being forgotten that comes from the first film. So you know, similar. It, so I, I'm just saying, it, it, it was just something that popped into my head because well, yes, it comes from the first film. It's just really heavy handed about. Oh yeah. Well, and then with the, with the popularity of Freddy versus Jason, they actually wanted to make a Candyman versus a Leprechaun. Oh, uh, yeah. And Tony Todd put that shit to bed real fucking quick. Yes, he did. Yeah, Thank he said God he refused to Todd. be a part of that. <laughs> um, I couldn't tell. It looks like he cut her ear. I, was it her ear at this port? Port? Part. Jesus. Side of her face, ear. Why the ear, man? Um, mm. So Bernadette's at the door. Helen's not really screaming. She's just like, Bernadette, go! So she really can't hear. And then she finally gets out of scream. Bernadette, go! So Bernadette does the complete opposite, enters, and she sees the Candyman, who then kills her. So I'm wondering, she did she say Candyman in the mirror one more time between now and the beginning of the movie? It's a good question. How else would she see the Candyman? She's only said it four times. Well, I mean, at this point, there's a line later in the film where it's all it, it, always, it was always you. So mm-hmm. was it really the Candyman that killed Bernadette, or was it Virginia Matthews' character? Oh, see, that's a different way of looking at that. We'll, we'll get there. I hadn't thought about yeah. that. We'll have to discuss that point when we get there. Um, so yeah, Trevor returns home, finds Helen on the floor, covered in blood, holding a knife, and Bernadette dead. We cut to Helen cuffed in bed under police supervision. She runs into the living room. No one stops her. <laughs> Where everybody's just yeah. kind of fucking sitting around the corpse of Bernadette having a little chit-chat. <laughs> What? <laughs> I mean, the the gore effects on uh, Bernadette are top notch. Yeah, and I think it was probably the main reason for that whole scene versus. But could you could you imagine? Like, oh, we'll leave the body here. Let's just fucking sit around, and have a cup of Joe, and talk about what happened. Yeah, and just let the person who we think is a suspect just walk in the room. But then again, cops do weird shit. Like when my car got hit back in September, and they. They came, knocked on my door, and brought me out. They let the guy that hit my car just walk up to me and start talking to me. The dude was on drugs, drunk, and got arrested. Maybe they knew he was just sorry. <laughs> so they, they do some weird things sometimes. <laughs> uh, speaking of weird things that cops do, Valento then says, take her outside. So why the hell was she handcuffed in bed to begin with? She should have been in the car already. Yeah. Um, so we cut to a montage. It's going to be a montage. Of uh, Helen being taken to the institution with an awesome narration by Tony Todd and the brilliant score by Philip Glass. Uh, Tony Todd's narration says, why do you want to live? If you would learn just a little from me, you would not beg to live. I am rumor it is a blessed condition, believe me, to be whispered about at the street corner, to live in other people's dreams, but not to have to be. Do you understand? And that's the line you were alluding to from the forbidden earlier. Cool. Clive Barker's awesome. <laughs> mm. So for me, I feel like that line really sums up the legend of the Candyman. In mm. my research for Candyman, um, I saw a lot of people asking, why does Candyman make it to look like other people did the killings? The answer is that line. And again, in Candyman 2021, further solidified this. Candyman right. is an idea, a myth, a legend. If people believe the Candyman is a tangible, real person, he ceases to be. Right. He needs to be the writing on the wall, you know, again right. with graffiti, which is another parallel that I just made now, live, with you. The writing on the wall, the graffiti, sweets to the sweets. It's, right. it's Candyman. Exactly. And it goes back to him saying to 
Virginia Madison, it was always you. So basically alluding to you were the one physically doing the killings. I was the one steering the wheel. Yeah. So you know? they get her to the institution and I'm like, my first thought is why didn't they take her out of the bloody clothes? They strap her <laughs> to the bed. Uh, she screams, they can't leave her there because uh, she can't defend herself. Candyman appears uh, b- above her. This scene is awesome, by the way. They came in, uh, Tony Todd floating above her. Um, Helen's losing her shit. She's screaming to everyone. He's under the bed. Um, Candyman asks for a kiss. And then I, my note here is, fuck me. Phil Glass's score is absolutely awesome. <laughs> Thanks. So we cut to the derelict apartment in Cabrini Green. Baby Anthony is crying. Candyman comforts him with sweets. I couldn't tell what was on his finger. Was it honey or was it blood? I thought it was honey, but I'd have to rewind. I, I couldn't. Like, I went back and looked at it 12 times. I couldn't make out what it was. I mean, it would make sense to be honey, right? Right. Um, so we cut back to Helen. She's strapped to the table. She wants to speak to her husband. She wants to know where she's going. The orderly, who, by the way, was Wyatt's dad in Weird Science and was oh, also nice. in Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny tells her that they're going to disneyland they take her to see dr burke who was also in cheers uh helen wants to speak to trevor and ask if she's been committed and questions the restraints she finds out that she's been there for a month it's basically been comatose the whole time right uh, she asks for her attorney and finds out uh that burke is actually working for her attorney he tells her that she's being charged with first degree murder he asks what happened to her apartment she doesn't answer he plays security footage of her screaming about him being under the bed uh, from her first day there. Helen can't believe that the flying man with the hook on his hand isn't showing up in the video. <laughs> she says she's not capable of killing Bernadette. Uh, she says she can prove it by calling Candyman. And I gotta wonder what exactly the fuck this is going to prove. There's no mirror that we know yeah, of. Yeah, there is actually. Oh, and then there yeah, is. So she looks in the mirror and she says Candyman five times. Uh, now we're over four. So collectively, between her and Bernadette, they said Candyman fourteen times at this point. Well, they hit the fourteen film. originally planned, right? Yeah, but they hit the thirteen originally planned. Well, yeah, but, but that gives us one killing. <laughs> you know? Being funny, anyway. So by my by my math, all she really had to do, if we assume that Bernadette did not say it another time, all Helen had to do was say it once in the mirror to hit the five total. But she said at five, so then we got four of them laying out there in the universe. So if somebody looks in the mirror and says Candyman one time, they're fucked. You're, you're going way too far into that rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, Lord. Anyway, Candyman appears and kills Dr. Burke. Um, this time, not from growing the gullet, more like from asshole to neck. Yeah, I do have something good on that one. Shoot, though. brother. Out of everything in this film, that was the one thing the MPAA had an issue with was the original murder of the of the doctor um they actually had to have that recut and initially it was only able to be viewed in its originality their original state uh in the 18 um plus rated uk cut uh it's now obviously available in any of the uncut versions that are released on dvd blu-ray etc cetera, etc cetera. but um that was one that uh it mostly just cut to her reactions because apparently it was just that brutal so that was well, it's funny cool. that you bring that up because i was i was actually researching a bit of that too um at that time period for horror movies, it's weird that it played out that way because it was usually the reverse where mm-hmm. the the American version of movies were a little more lenient with the gore and the British versions the, were, you know, getting hard, hit hard with the, the censorship. So that actually right. was not the case for the 18 plus version in uh, over in the UK. 
Um, mm-hmm. so it's just weird that it played out that way. Um, so where are we at here? So he kills Dr. Burke. He cuts open her restraints and he leaves out the window like Batman. Yeah, it was funny. Helen decides at this point, it is a great idea to escape through the window. <laughs> I really wasn't sure of that part. Like, you know, she's naked underneath the gown, still has blood on her and just, I'm going to go out the window. We will but finish that like, naked part real quick. She yes. climbs to the ledge to another window, assaults a nurse, strips the nurse, takes her clothes, and this will definitely help her I'm not crazy defense. I can't see how anybody would think this woman's crazy at this point. So Helen heads home to find that Trevor and Stacy moved in and they're redecorating in the one month's time. Uh, Stacy immediately bursts into tears when Helen tells her to get out. Trevor appears dressed like Hugh Hefner. Helen says she hates the color scheme and then throws said color scheme paint at the wall, thus helping them redecorate. Um, she blows up on Trevor, who wants to call the hospital. Helen tells mm-hmm. Stacy to make the call, who is, by the way, crying like a blithering idiot for reasons I, I don't understand. Maybe she's just super emotional. It's at this point I realized that Trevor is played by Xander Berkeley, who is John Connor's foster father in Terminator 2, and he's also Gregory in The Walking Dead. Holy shit. Oh, he's been in everything. He's that guy. Yeah, he's got one of those faces, you know? Like, oh, I've seen mm-hmm. him in tons of things. But you don't realize it's him, do you realize it's him? Exactly. Um, Helen's having a mild crisis, and Trevor approaches the phone, but Helen catches him and splits. We get this nice water Helena Bridge montage with a nice piece from Philip Glass. Again, and Candyman talking about his desire for her. We're nearing the end of the, uh, the motion picture here. Uh, Helen's back at Cabrini Green. She's going back to the derelict apartment. There's candles set up and lit in the apartment, as well as a meat hook hanging on a chain. Now, this is just a random meat hook. This isn't Candyman, so it's just a random ass. Mm-hmm. Leatherface is going to have a candy. I would watch that over Candyman versus Leprechaun. Uh, she takes the hook. She climbs into another up into another apartment building that was in one of her visions. She finds the mural of the Candyman legend and turns around to see Candyman taking a nap. Killers get tired too. What are you going to do? Exactly. <laughs> I was jealous of that scene. I wish I could nap. Right, same. I mean, even if they are supernatural entities, they still need sleep. Um, she then stabs him with a meat hook as if that would do anything. Candyman has tears in his eyes, I've noticed, which is very subtle. Very mm-hmm. subtle and nuanced to the place towards the romance between these two characters. That we're, we're not quite sure is a romance, but we're going to find out here momentarily. He asks her to surrender to him. I really have to point out that I appreciate the lighting effects when Helen goes into the trance, mm-hmm. it's a softer, more uh, surreal lighting. So that, right. that's that's super cool. Um, Helen and Candyman have a great conversation about what she's afraid of. The pain or what lies beyond? Both. The pain, I can assure you, will be exquisite. We go further into the Candyman mythos here as he explains that um, how their deaths will give them something to remember. Come with me and be immortal. Cut to this awesome shot of the bees coming out of Candyman's mouth and chest, and I'm sure you have something about their little yep. um, their romance here. Yep, so uh, a few things. One, uh, Tony Todd, Virginia Madsen, as I stated, uh, I think I said this earlier in the, in the thing, um, they actually took ballroom dancing and fencing classes to help them with their chemistry, with their ability to flow with each other. Um, between that and the hypnosis with Virginia Madsen and then the bees. So the funny thing about the bees, as I stated earlier too, is that they were all 12 year old bred bees for these scenes. So if they did sting, the sting wasn't nearly as bad or potent, but Virginia Madsen was actually allergic to bees. 
And she brought it up to the director, which the director said, no, you're not. You're just afraid of them. And she goes, no, I'm allergic. So they went to UCLA, I think it was. Don't quote me on that specific one. And um, had her tested. And she was mostly allergic to wasps, but still allergic to bees, which in turn, he said, you'll be fine. Actors always want to get a paycheck. You'll just basically do it. And I'm sitting here going, try that in today. Yeah, that wouldn't fly. Could you imagine telling somebody you have a medical condition? They're like, no. No, work does that all the time, though. <laughs> but um, it took a half hour for all the bees to get into Tony Todd's mouth. He actually basically tranced out. It was the only way that he could sit and deal with it. Uh, he actually placed dental dam in his mouth so the bees wouldn't go down his throat. Uh, and then for the chest piece, actually was separate. They had to put it on him with the bees already on him. And basically the bee wrangler told him and uh, Virginia Madsen not to freak out, not to swat, not to get anxious because that would potentially harm the bees and or make them sting more. So they had to be very, very careful. And the shots were done very quick, very short bursts. And um, it took almost 45 minutes to get all the bees off of them at the end of the scene. And they had to use that little bee vacuum that I was talking about that just slowly sucked them in. So, <laughs> so they told the, uh, they told the lady with the, the allergy to bees to be careful as to not hurt the bees. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so like I said, we get the, wow, the come with me and be immortal. Uh, cut to the bees coming out of his mouth, the awesome chest gag. Um, and then there's that bee kiss. Everyone's covered in bees. Uh, cut to baby Anthony. Quote, you are mine now. It's time for a new miracle. And Candyman takes baby Anthony away, which... It's great that that's foreshadowing without foreshadowing. Right, had because no idea. it didn't exist yet. And guys, we're talking about 2021. Spoilers mm -hmm. again. They had no way of knowing that that was going to be where the story went. And I'm so happy that it did go there. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's incredible. Um, let's see. Helen wakes up. She's swatting away nothing because we can't hurt the bees. No, um, no, not alone. Um, and she finds the meat hook. She sees a mural again. This time it says it was always you, Helen, across it. And she discovers herself in the mural. And this is where mm -hmm. the timeless romance comes from. Again, yep. you know, parallels to Dracula. Yeah, it actually was stated that there were exact parallels to um, Dracula from Bram Stoker's, that that was meant and also noticed even back then. So that was kind of could cool. Could we, uh, could we by chance, because we haven't said it yet, could we call it Nomaz? <laughs> I thought I did say homage earlier. Did you? The word was already used. You said meta, I thought I said homage. Could so we wrong. checked meta and we checked Nomaz off the list? Yes. I think that's our two main gags. Okay. <laughs> Um, so she exits the, uh, and finds the, bo the bonfire unlit. She hears baby Anthony crying inside. She digs through the bonfire to find him. Uh, Jake hears this and he sees the hook like going inside the bonfire. He just sees the hook through the window. Mm -hmm. um, and he says he's here. He and some others from Cabrini come out to light the fire while Helen's crawling through it to find baby Anthony. The music really complements the scene here. It's, it's a mm -hmm. more subdued piece from the score especially when you consider that people are basically inside of a raging inferno and it should be really tense, but Philip Glass just complements it with this really subdued piece of music. Um, the residents of Cabrini Green are coming out of the bonfire. Candyman appears and holds Helen and the baby Anthony in place. Jake lights the fire and the people of Cabrini are chanting burn. Now, before we move on, do you, did you want to talk about the, because um, we kind of just passed over it, the, it was always you, Helen? Mm -hmm. part of this because you brought up an interesting point so when i read 
when I when I read it out of the wall, and with the revelation of um, again, once you watch the sequels, you know it was you know the family bloodline, but that's not here in this movie. Um, right. The, the woman looked like Helen, the one that um, Daniel Robotai, the Candyman, fell in love with. Um, so that's how I took that. But you have an interesting take on. I mean, again, it's up for interpretation. I think it might even be both. Um, I took it very in your face of it was always you that Candyman was a manifestation that forced her to do the killings for him. Hence, you said he can't be known that he's there. So he uses vessels to do it for him. And those vessels become just as infamous as he does. Hence, her being in the murals, uh, her not jumping too forward, but being the one that shows up in the mirror when her name gets chanted. Uh, she becomes part of the mythos. But at the same time, like you said, with Daniel Robitaille in the, in the sequels, that it also looks kind of like her. So it could be that ever-loving, or that ever-ongoing love story like Bram Stoker's Dracula mixed with the straightforward, you know, it was always you. And um, I got something else too. So the whole thing with the bonfire, that was actually ripped straight from the original Forbidden. Uh, because over in London, the bonfire is actually part of a traditional, what they call the Guy Fawkes Night Celebration. So that was how the story must, I haven't read the story, uh, must have played out as well. So they kind of shoehorned that into the film, which even a few of the sources that I had read even said it kind of didn't make sense for the bonfire. It just kind of was there. You know, it was like, this is a thing, just go with it. But over in London, it was actually part of a festival. So it made more sense to actually have the bonfire mm-hmm. there. You know, getting back to your 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 uh, your take on it was Helen the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because you sit and think about it in, in every scene that, well, you know what? Not every scene. I was going to say in every scene that Candyman murders someone, she's caught brandishing a weapon, but she's actually right. not because when Doctor Burke gets killed, that's the only one that's kind of hard to explain. But again, there's certain things you have to just uh, suspend belief. You know, she really didn't have any weapons. I suppose it's open to uh, interpretation because clearly you know, in the doctor's office like that, especially with a psycho patient, they're going to have cameras. So, you know, now I'm thinking too far into it, but are you really going to have Candyman killing this guy? No, you're going to see Virginia Madsen doing. Makes sense. Back to the film. Helen yeah. asks Candyman to let her go. Deals her recant that they're already dead. They'll never be separated again. Helen sees Anne-Marie through all of the, the junk uh, when she's peering out. Uh, she looks at the baby and lights Candyman on fire with, it looked like a flaming stake to the heart, further parallels with Dracula. Right. Um, she begins to crawl towards an opening with the baby and the fire collapses. Helen's on fire, Candyman's on fire. Everything's on fire. Helen crawls out, still on fire. Um, the residents put her out while Candyman is screaming, come back. She gives the baby to Anne-Marie. Her hair is completely burned off. The bonfire collapses on the Candyman and we see a burning corpse in the center and it's a happy ending for everybody. And then we cut to Helen's funeral. <laughs> Trevor and Stacy, they, they go to the funeral. That's very sweet of them. Um, mm-hmm. There are only like four people here. Then all of Cabrini Green show out for this. Anne Marie looks like she's about to fuck Trevor up, honestly. She doesn't even notice that, but she's just got like this, this sense about her, like, that's that dude. She looks mm-hmm. like she's about to whoop his ass. Um, Jack throws Candyman's hook into her grave like some little psycho. <laughs> a strange thing and it wasn't like the meat hook it was the candy man's hook so then that comes no. to just candy man tangible where did he get this i don't know maybe it's just meant to be symbolism what was the symbology of it thank you <laughs> symbolism 
<laughs> what is the <laughs> All of a sudden, Trevor's at home, distraught. It's completely distraught about losing his wife that he was completely fucking around on. Uh, Stacy's asking him some bullshit that I actually don't care about, and neither does he. <laughs> and apparently, yeah. neither does she, because she goes to the kitchen and she's pissed. Uh, Trevor flashbacks to how awesome of a wife Helen was, and he starts crying. Stacy wants help making dinner. He sucks and says later or something. She's mad. He's mm-hmm. crying in the mirror some more. Uh, where was this love through the whole movie is my my question. He says, oh, Helen. And he's like, you know, lamenting, losing her. Uh, it does it four more times. And I think we know where this is going. Helen yeah. appears behind him and kills him. Stacy finds him and screams like an absolute maniac. And I'm pretty sure she's holding a knife as well. Yes. Right, and so the, the cycle starts yeah. over. And this is the end. My last note here is Philip Glass's score fucking rolls. Well, and I, I want to add in there, I was, so I watched it on Shudder, and um, I was looking at the reviews, and someone's review was nothing about the movie. It was, Trevor is the worst. Even his girlfriend was pissed off at him by the end. Yeah. Yeah, he's and a total dickhead. Like... Yeah, absolutely, total dickhead. He's a smug prick. You get that from the very first scene that he's in, but I think, you know, obviously mm-hmm. he's meant to be, you're not supposed to like Trevor. Yeah. But it, it's always nice to have some redeeming qualities for people because, you know, two dimension versus three dimensional characters, but yeah, they just made him to be. A yeah. Ball. We didn't do that with Trevor. He's a prick. Yeah. That's his character arc. <laughs> his character arc is a straight line. He's just a dickhead. So, right. so what are your thoughts on Candyman, man? I absolutely love it. Um, my biggest complaint, but I also think it's a product of the time, is just it's a slow burn. And if you're not sitting in the right mindset, it can be a little boring at times. Uh, but that is not discounting the impact and the greatness of the movie. It's kind of like The Exorcist. I am terrified and absolutely love The Exorcist. The only movie that I can honestly say has ever scared me. But if you are tired or you're not in the mood to watch it, you're going to fall asleep. And I kind of feel that way with the way the pacing is in this. Like you, like, let me rephrase. You, because even you called me out on that. It's not the pacing; it's the the tone, the mood, and the the way the movie moves. You know, again, you don't see the monster until forty four minutes in, which is brilliant. But also, if you're looking just for something to throw on in the background, this isn't the movie for you. You know, you, this is something that you sit down and you digest and you you really enjoy. And I think that's the power and why it's such a. Classic. I would uh, I would say that this is cinema. Um, mm-hmm. This is cinema. This is not your run-of-the-mill horror movie. Um, exactly. It has a lot to say, and it it says it expertly, I would say. This is going to mm-hmm. be your point. It's not something you just put on in the background. You you have to walk to watch Candyman. You can't just put it on because you're bored. Uh, right. You can't just find it on TV and jump in. Honestly, I feel like you got to watch it start to finish. Um, it's a, that's the difference between films like this and the, you know, the Friday the 13th of the world. That's not right. Friday the 13th. I love Friday the 13th. Um, but yeah, I would say that this is more cinema. And because it is the horror genre, I don't think up until recently it was as appreciated as it should have been. It is a right. slow burn, but intentionally so. And I think it needs to be. Oh, yeah. It's funny that you say it's not appreciated. I can agree and disagree with that because... Uh, I didn't really think a lot of notes on it because I didn't think it'd be too pertinent, but the film falls on a lot of like top 20, top 100, top 50 must-sees, horror, slasher, blah, blah, blah. And it usually falls within the top one, uh, five to 10 because 
as you said, I feel it's definitely more appreciated now than it was. But even back then, there was a lot of appreciation in a cult way, like a cult following way. Of the um, the the two popular Clive Barker, um, and I don't say franchises because let's not talk about sequels right now, at least. <laughs> um, I would say I prefer Candyman to Hellraiser. I can see that. But they both they both have that thing, and I, I think this is a reflection of also Clive Barker's writing. Hellraiser is a slow burn too. Mm-hmm. Again, not something you put on in the background. You put Hellraiser three on in the background, right? Because it's not good. <laughs> it's fun. It's not good. Um, but yeah, it's a getting to a point with Candyman and Clive Barker. This is this is a little nugget that I I thought was interesting. Um, as we get ready to wrap up here, the sequel for Candyman, um, Farewell to the Flesh, was originally. Firstly, it was going to be a prequel, but then there was the idea of doing Candyman 2 Midnight Meat Train based on the Clive Barker story Midnight Meat Train. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, that that did not happen, obviously. So, I would say, let's get to the ratings here. I would give Candyman probably... This isn't because I dislike anything about it. It's just not my favorite movie. Mm. Um, probably 20 out of 23 Bee Stings. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'd probably, if I was, since you kind of pulled that one, I'd probably do like a 8.75 out of 10. Okay. Okay. You know, Which again, is around about, you know, eight, yeah. eight and four-fifths Bee Stings out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> But no, no, it, it's it's one that when I get in the mood to watch it, I sit and I enjoy it and I love it and I feel I walk away with something. But it's not one that I'm going to just sit down and watch all the time. You know, it it would be a hard thing to just hey, you know, let's throw it on. Let's throw it on now. You you do that like you said with Hellraiser three, Freddy vs. Jason, uh, just something random. Like you're not going to put Midsummer on in the background. You know, right. it, it, it's got that impactfulness that you just have to sit and really take in so I, another thing that i think is very important about Candyman, um it's timeless mm-hmm. the legend itself just like the Candyman mythos right. the film is timeless it is applicable to many eras unfortunately many eras in history mm-hmm. um right today and i think that's that's what the decosta film really kind of jumped on was showing that Candyman isn't just Robitaille. It's anyone in that mindset, anyone in that tragedy. And hence, Helen becomes part of the mythos. You know, the Candyman in the new film was a completely different person. You know, it, it, it makes it broader. You know, Robitaille may have been the original, may not have been, but it's the state of being that really is what it is. And I, I love that. Yeah. The, uh, the takeaway is that the Candyman mythos is it's bigger than the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Candyman is, is a victim as much as a monster mm-hmm. in these films. And again, timeless, ageless, yeah. timeless. Very, very important, I believe, very important movie in cinema, uh, especially in the horror genre. Well, with that said, this was our first episode back. Um, yes. Ran about as long as the movie almost. 
<laughs> oh Jesus Christ! I didn't realize it didn't happen. Yeah, we're at a we're at a buck twenty seven right now. <laughs> so with that said, um, guys, Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, those platforms. Um, you can find us on YouTube. Please uh, hit the little bell icon, like and subscribe, comment, uh, leave us a five star, please. Any any kind of rating is helpful, preferably a five star on the the podcasting platforms. Um, our Twitters and our Instagrams are all over this screen right now on YouTube. Um, but if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at MM MonsterCast. On Instagram, it's at Manmade MonsterCast. I am Rob138. This is my partner in crime over there. Bob Stank. In the wrong direction. Bob Stank. Got anything you want to say? Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks for sticking through it because this was a little bit longer than I actually thought it was going to end up being. But it's it, it's worth it. It's, it's a film that you got to watch. And I, I'm glad we took our time. Uh, for those of you that may have tuned out early, I think you missed some good stuff. I think there's a lot of good facts on here. And um, really looking forward to the next one. Hopefully uh, it'll be sooner than later. We love you guys. Thank you very much. We will catch you all on the flip side.